This recording has been produced by Christchurch, Jerusalem. For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org. The, uh, we are in the last Sunday of Epiphany, and we are just about to begin a season called Lent. Now, for those of us who might not be part of a community that follows a religious calendar, uh, religious calendars are actually something we inherit from the Jewish people. So God, when he gets his people out of Egypt, what's his very first command to them? Go make a calendar. Okay, he says, you write in your diaries, Exodus 12, you write in your diary that this is the 14th of Aviv. You make sure that next year, when it comes to this day, you celebrate Passover. God has done amazing things in time. And they're very special. And he doesn't want us to forget. And so we have a religious calendar. Yes, there's a religious calendar in Leviticus. But notice that when you read Leviticus, it doesn't have Purim in it, does it? Nope. You can add to your religious calendar. And the Jewish people did. It doesn't have Tisha B'Av on it. You added that to the calendar. It doesn't have Hanukkah on it. Added that to the calendar. In fact, in the Second Temple period, they actually had a feast day for every day of the, of the month. Okay? Now they've shortened it a lot less. But uh, 2,000 years ago, their calendar was full. They were remembering everything that God did. And so we are about to enter Lent which is a traditional fast, it's a 40-day fast, and uh, where we give up something and we remind ourselves that it is suffering that produces perseverance, character, and hope. And uh, we would, the money that we would normally spend on ourselves, we give to the poor, reminding ourselves, just as they did in the temple, to be generous. Remember with the, with the, with the temple, when you had a sacrifice, what did you have to do to it? You had to eat it. You didn't just kill it, but you gave a bit to the priest. For him and his family, you gave a bit to God. It was a special bit that God had. And then you had it, and you had to eat it all in one sitting, which was if you've just killed a goat, it's really hard. I know some of you guys like meat, but that's hard to do. So what did you do? You invited all your friends. And so you learnt that even in the sacrificial system, to be generous. And it is also a tradition of the church that the, the Sunday before Lent is the Transfiguration. And so this Sunday, we always read the Transfiguration. It's so important to the church, they actually read it twice in the calendar year. They read it once now and once again during Pentecost. So I'm going to throw up uh, an icon I know it's a Protestant church, okay. but I've lived here for 20 years and I've learned something about, about icons. You know, in the ancient world, people didn't read as much as we would like them to. And so how did you read the gospel? You saw it with your eyes. You would take your, your son into a cathedral and you'd say, son, there's Jesus. Let me tell you about the transfiguration. Let me tell you about how, how blinding white he became, how his body changed. 
Let me tell you about these two guys who showed up, Moses and Elijah. And look at all the disciples asleep. Gosh. You know, the number of times the disciples fail uh, and God and Jesus still keeps them around, that's good news. <laughs> okay? He, Jesus doesn't get to the end of his ministry and go, well, I've decided to grade you your papers and it's not looking good for your team. Okay? Uh, you're all fired. Uh, I'm going to get some Chinese people because they just do whatever I say, okay? And we're all good. No, he keeps with us, and that's, that's absolutely wonderful. And every time we fail, he picks us up and he says, I'll give you more, more of the Spirit, more of me, more forgiveness. Keep going. Uh, it's wonderful. So that can stay there. The actual transfiguration in terms of the, the text often seems a little out of place. Uh, why? Why do do the, the Gospels this way? Um, the Gospels are finely crafted texts. They're not in chronological order. Jesus came and he did something. He did lots of somethings. And the Gospel writers had so much material to use, they didn't use all of it. They even say that themselves. There was a lot more we could write, but this is enough. And what they do is they take the events of, of, the, of Jesus and they put them in an order that helps their community, tells a story, reveals things about Jesus. For example, in the Gospel of John, the whipping in the temple, that's in John chapter 2. But in Matthew, it's in Matthew 28, right at the end. And what people try and do is they try and harmonize them. They try and say, well, there were actually two events. Two times Jesus walked in the temple and did his you know, Indiana Jones whip thing. Okay? Don't try and harmonize the Gospels. Learn from them. And so here you have uh, uh, the, the transfiguration. In, in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it, the transfiguration always comes after Peter's confession. Doesn't matter where they are in the story, whether it's late or early or in the middle, uh, once Peter has confessed, you are the Messiah, then we're going to have the transfiguration uh, event. And it's actually also referred to in Peter in the epistles. So, the context of this story Jesus has started his ministry, he has gathered some disciples together. He's becoming quite popular with the crowds. The crowds love him. They follow him. They chase him. They bring out their sick and demon-possessed. He is teaching. He is healing. He is challenging the status quo. That's always good fun with the crowds. Things are actually going pretty well. And then, all of a sudden, Jesus takes a few disciples and he goes away to a high mountain. Notice, he doesn't take them all. Okay? Only a few of the disciples are going to see a miracle. We should learn from that. Not all of us are going to see miracles. It would be nice. Jesus takes 120 of his closest buddies and uh, walked up to a mountain. Nathaniel's not there. Peter, James, and John. 
Uh, and, and who are these guys? You know what's going to happen to, to James? He's not going to last so long. By Acts 12, he's dead. He's out of the picture. In fact, according to Armenian tradition, it, that event occurs just over there. That's what their big cathedral, the Cathedral of St. James, is based on. It's based on the execution site of James. So he gets to go up to the mountain. He gets to experience the glory of the Lord. Nathaniel, who's the first disciple who actually rest, uh, worked out who Jesus was in 10 seconds, right? You're, you're the king of Israel. You're the son of God. It's like, awesome. You never hear about him again. He didn't get to go up. We need to learn as brothers and sisters, not, not miracles are not for everybody. It's great if you get one. But if you get a miracle, it doesn't protect you. And the same disciples who went up that mountain and saw Jesus are the same disciples who ran away. So let's all be careful with what miracles are. They're fantastic. And they are encouraging. It's absolutely delightful when brothers and sisters come and say, I've had a miracle. So fantastic. You, know? you prayed for me or, my, or you prayed for my son or you prayed for my daughter and, and it worked. It's like, oh, wow. It's fantastic. But it itself isn't the thing that protects you. Who saves us, brothers and sisters? Jesus, the risen Messiah. It's just well, the best of miracles. So, he takes away a couple of disciples very privately up to a tall mountain. Uh, we don't know the reason why, and we probably don't even know the, uh, the mountain. So it was actually Oregon. Everyone heard, heard of this guy? He's an early church father who's living in Caesarea. And uh, he's the guy that said the mountain was Tavor, Mount Tabor in the Galilee. And so what do we do promptly? We go build a church on top of it. Okay. Um, and it's a really nice church, by the way. Um, it probably most likely isn't that mountain. Actually, you know, I'm going to uh, use a, a few Jewish inferences here. Um, it's probably Mount Hermon, which doesn't have a church on top of it. It's got a ski resort, <laughs> which you've got to admit sometimes is a heck of a lot better. Okay? Right? And uh, so why Mount Hermon? Why do, we, why, do, why do I think that one? Well, um, Hermon in Hebrew means many. Harmon. Uh, very similar to the other Hebrew word, harbe. Mount Hermon, the mountain of the many. What many? Well, according to Jewish tradition, that's the mountain that the fallen angels came down on. The many who rebelled in Genesis 6. And uh, so in, in Jewish tradition, there are several places on the planet that have a special close connection to heaven, right? When, when God made the, the heavens and the earth, he made things in couples, yes? He made heaven and earth and they're connected. He made light and day and they're connected. He made good and evil and they're connected, which is a bizarre thing to think about. Jews and Gentiles, males and females. And they're definitely connected. Um, but in, in, in Jewish tradition, heaven and earth are connected. There are several places where, where that connection is more felt. One of them, you know, of course, the Temple Mountain. 
Heaven and earth meet at the Temple Mountain. Fire came down from heaven and burnt up the, uh, the sacrifice. The other one is Beit El, where Jacob had his, saw his dream. Heaven and earth are connected. And the other one, Mount Hermon. So next time you're up there skiing, okay, think about that. This is the mountain where the, the angels assembled. Uh, and the scene that we have on, the, on this mountain is very similar to uh, what we see in the Exodus. We have a mountain, and we have a cloud, we have light, we have a voice, we have the presence of the Lord. The, uh, the early church fathers, when they looked at this uh, passage, the early church fathers concentrated on um, the glorious body that Jesus had. For whatever reason, whatever was going on at the time, they wanted to focus on the resurrection, and they wanted to focus on the resurrection body. Could be because they were under persecution. Many of our brothers and sisters were, were being introduced to, to lions and, and, and other animals and uh, being killed. And so it was very important for the community to focus on, on the glorious body we would get in the resurrection. It's true. It's wonderful to concentrate on that. So that's one thing you can look at when you see the, the icon. The Desert Fathers. Does anyone know who the Desert Fathers are? The ascetics? So, uh, yes, the Desert Fathers. These are a group of people who um, went out into the desert to fight the devil. Because according to Jewish tradition, that's where the devil lives. In the desert. That's where the bad guys are. That's where everything is... is is, is, is there's no life there, there's no water, that's where everything is wrong. Uh, you really, really need the Lord to protect you. And so when Jesus goes into the desert, who does he meet? He's the devil. That's a strong Jewish tradition. So the early desert fathers left the cities for all other kinds of reasons. They saw it becoming quite corrupt. And uh, they escaped to the solitude of the desert where they could talk to God because that's where God also speaks. On one hand... You have the enemy. But on the other hand, that's where God talks. God talks to his heroes in the desert. He sends Moses into the desert. Israel's in the desert. David's in the desert. Jesus in the desert. Everybody's in the desert. And that's where God speaks. Could be also a play on words. Hebrew word for desert is midbar. Same word, medaber, means to speak. And, uh, and so these desert fathers would go to talk to God and they would fight the devil. And uh, so when they would look at this icon, they would, they would focus on uh, the light of God and why it is so special. They would look at the, that when God started creation, the first thing he made was light. And what did that light do? It chased away the darkness. Arise, shine, brothers and sisters, for your light has come. And darkness covers the face of the people. And so the early, church, uh, early desert fathers looked at the light of God. It was very special. It was very powerful. It fights back the darkness. It guides. It protects. So I wanted to look at a couple of other parts of the, of the story. So here in our icon, there are two people who are actually awake with Jesus. And they are Moses and Elijah. And we go, well, who are they? 
Uh, why are they here? Uh, why not somebody else? Um, and Oregon also had some comments about this. Um, he he uh, he took he takes things very allegorically usually and quite metaphorical. So he said these represent the law and the prophets. And pretty much ever since Oregon, that's the way we're interpreting Luke nine. Moses and Elijah, next thing off our lips, law and the prophets. A uh, few issues with that is, one, um, Elijah never actually wrote anything, even though he's the guy there with a book. Right? Uh, he's the guy on this side who's a bit younger, right? because he didn't die. Moses lived to a ripe old age, 120-something, and um, so he's, he's uh, there, quite old. Uh, Elijah's got a book, but he actually never actually physically wrote anything. So all of his adventures are in Kings. And that's where you read about Elijah. Who's the big guy who wrote the biggest book of the prophets? Isaiah. You know, if you wanted to have the prophet Isaiah there, well, that's, that would be more to the point, wouldn't it? It talks about Jesus a lot, I thought. Yes? Oh, my gosh, yes. But um, uh, actually, I don't think they represent the law and the prophets because Moses is also a prophet. Right? So is King David, by the way. Okay, the Bible calls them prophets. And so when Israel was being led out of Egypt, they had three prophets. Who were they? Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Right? Miriam is a prophet. She's a prophetess. In fact, she had a very particular special gift. What was her special power? She could find water. Yeah. Now, when you're in a desert, that is a very special gift. <laughs> now, how do the Jewish people come to this conclusion? Okay, you know, you're like, oh my gosh, it doesn't actually say, Miriam, the prophetess, she could find water. Uh, here's what it does say in Exodus. It says in the same sentence, Miriam died and there was no water. And they go, now, in Jewish tradition, the Bible is divine language. This is very special. Everything's in the right order in the way it's meant to be. And it even sounds the way it's meant to be. Even when you listen to Hebrew, you, uh, you hear more than you, than you read. Uh, so if Miriam dies and there's no water, there's got to be a connection. And in fact, in, in biblical Hebrew, Mila Tanachi, you have um, uh, Miriam, Miriam, there is water. Okay, so um, that could be one of her special gifts. So they're both prophets. But there's a, something else that these guys actually have in common. Do you know what it is? They're both part of the messianic kingdom. They both tell us something of the future messianic hero. What does Moses say? He says, you look for someone greater than me. Just like me, but, but better. Him you need to listen to. So we're always waiting for the next Moses, which is what Jesus is. And the Gospels are very, very clean to try and tell us Jesus is the new Moses. He is the one from Deuteronomy 18 that we are expecting. Right? And who's going to be the forerunner of the Messiah? It's got to be Elijah. Right? He's the one. He is the herald which will come. Uh, so whenever we celebrate Passover, we have a, a spare seat just waiting for this guy to show up. So here he is. And what are they talking about? They arrive. They start having a discussion uh, with Jesus. And in, in, ex, in Luke 9.31, 
The actual Greek word is exodus. They start talking to Jesus about his exodus. So some translations will say his departure. Some will say they get the meaning. They say, oh, his death. And so here you have a very interesting event. Things are going really well for Jesus. Swimmingly, as you might want to say. And then we have to have this transfiguration where the heroes come and they say, okay, brother, master, it's also about your exodus. Let's talk about that. Let's get you, get you ready for your face towards Jerusalem. And you know what is going to happen. But we'll be there too. One thing I like about this icon, whenever I see it, is uh, I notice something about Elijah and Moses. What is it? They're not dead. I mean, it's a, they're alive. And they look remarkably like the other guys who are alive. And that's actually a really nice thought. Because we have this thing called death. And I'm going to bet none of us know what that means. Because it's not meant to be part of creation. It was never meant to be here. Never meant to be the plan. So in, 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 in Jewish tradition, you have life. Then you have this thing called death, and it's horrible. And then there's this other thing called life. We just have to get through this thing called death. But when you get to the other side, you're alive. How do I know this? Well, first of all, I'll use a Jewish book, Jonah, the prophet Jonah. Jonah is swallowed by a big fish, yes? And in Hebrew, he says, sheol. I am in the belly of the Sheol. Where is Sheol? So where is he? He's dead. And what's he doing? He's docking. <laughs> He's repenting. He gets resurrected. The sign of the prophet Jonah you'll be given. You'll be given the sign of the prophet Jonah. And that's not to be vomited by a big fish. And we should all just swim in the sea and hope, hope that happens to us. It's the resurrection. The sign is that the resurrection. That's the gospel in one sentence. Messiah rose from the dead. The best, the best of sentences. And if he resurrects, you will too. When you get to Jesus and his teaching on uh, the, the afterlife, he has a little glimpse of it. There is a rich man, there is a poor man, whom he conveniently names Lazarus, named after his friends. Okay? So you know how preachers are always talking about their families and sermons? Jesus did it too. Okay. So, poor Lazarus. Okay, if Lazarus was listening to this, he was like, oh, he's doing it again. Lazarus and the rich man die. And what do they do? Were they in soul sleep, waiting for the resurrection? They were talking to each other. They were conscious of what was still on the other side of life. Can you send someone back to, to warn my brothers? And they go, well, I can't. There's this huge chasm. I can't move anywhere. Can you please give me a drink? It's hot here. It's, I can't. But they're, they're talking. Get to Revelation. And you have the spirits sitting at the throne of God. 
the ones who are martyred during the tribulation. And what are they doing? They're talking. Dear Lord, when are you going to bring vengeance? They're conscious of time. It hasn't happened yet. Okay? So, uh, which is a comforting thought for all of our departed, yes? As Hebrews says, there is a cloud of witnesses with us, watching, praying for us, giving us encouragement. And that is a very nice thought. So when I look at these guys, just reminds me, they're alive. And they have a great role to play. Now, after they've had their little discussion, you get this cloud come. In, in, the, in, the, in Jewish tradition, that's where the presence of the Lord is most often felt. God speaks from this cloud. And uh, this cloud comes with the glory of the Lord. The glory is the holiness of something that's actually invisible. Because we can't always take it in. We cannot take in or feast on the majesty of God with our eyes. So there's this cloud. It's like a veil. It's like a mist. But the presence is there. The glory is there. The kavod, la Adonai, the honor of the Lord. So kavod is uh, the word we use for glory. It also means honor. Also means heavy. Kaved. There is a what is God is heavy. And that doesn't mean he gets kind of, you know, blues grass soul. You know, the Lord is just heavy. But he's heavy in purity. He's heavy in majesty. He's heavy in love. He's heavy in mercy. He's heavy in power. And what's the reaction of our friends? The disciples? Well, first of all, they're asleep. Second thing, they're afraid. Okay? And in Matthew, they fall down. In fact, in Matthew, everybody keeps falling down. It's a thing, thing about him. Jesus speaks, everybody falls down. Here, the disciples are afraid. They're afraid at the glory of the Lord. Think about that. That's a good lesson for us. Be very careful what you wish for when you say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. I know that everybody wants Jesus to come back. Who wants Jesus to come back? Come on, all hands up. And just for the podcast, I just saw 300 hands go up. But, the, but think about that. When I came to Israel, I came to Israel in 1998. And, uh, and it was a really nice trip. I drove here, which is an interesting way to get, get here. Uh, and I was walking around the city, and I saw a book called um, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Was Coming Back in 1988. <laughs> it was on sale for half a shekel. <laughs> and I remember thinking, oh, I'm really glad he didn't. Okay, because I didn't get saved till 1991. Right? And so there's a, there's a part of us, so there's, it's this Jewish tension between push-pull. On one hand, we say, please, Lord, send the Redeemer, send the Messiah. And on the other hand, it's like, wait, give us a little more time. Uncle John's not quite there yet. Okay, thank you for waiting for me. Please be gracious and wait for some more. And I'll get busy. And so there's that push-pull. You know, if Jesus came here and he walked in through this door, i got to tell you, we are not going to stand up and go, hey, Lord, give me a high five. We're going to do what these disciples did. We're going to fall down, and we're going to wait for him to lift us up. 
and say, well done, good and faithful servant. But he is a king. He is a master and he is full of weight and glory that will push us to our knees. And so there is, there is this, even a sense of fear, the fear of the Lord. And there is a price for this glory. There was a price for Jesus and it's going to be the price for us too. What is it? It's the way of the cross. It's the exodus. We are going to have to face not just a mountaintop experience, not just an opportunity to see a miracle or to hear miracles from somebody else. We're going to have to face Calvary. We're going to have to look at Jesus on a different hill. And we're going to have to do our best not to run away. Do our best to stay in his presence, in his mercy, in his power. The disciples failed, but thanks be to God, Jesus does not. And lastly, there's a voice. The voice that speaks from this cloud, the voice that comes with the glory, the voice of God. And he talks to the disciples. Isn't that interesting? He affirms Jesus. He says, this is my beloved son. I love him. Now listen to him. So he's affirmed. He is told that he is loved. He is told of his sonship. And then God speaks to us. And he says, now you listen. And the word in Hebrew for listen is Shema. We're actually going to stand and say the Shema. Our Jewish brother from Venezuela will lead us in that oath of loyalty. And we stand up and proclaim that for us, brothers and sisters, there is only one God and only one King. But Shema in Hebrew means a little more than just hear. It does mean to hear, lishmoa, the verb to hear. It is also the word in the Bible for obey. There is no other word in the Bible for obey. Okay, they actually, in, in modern Hebrew, they had to create one. Okay, because they had to figure out, we've got all these soldiers running around here. We need, to, we need to make them actually obey us. So they created a word called letzayet, which is nothing like what you read in the Bible. But to hear the Lord... Shemua, Shema, is also to obey. Jesus says it himself. Blessed is he who hears my words and? Yep. Very Jewish thing to say. And so when God, king of the universe, heavy in majesty, power and mercy and love, turns around and says, listen to him, what does that mean, brothers and sisters? Obey. So when we stand up and acknowledge there is a king, and he is the best of kings, Yes? He's the king that came to us when we failed. While I was a sinner, Christ died for me. Whoa, that's awesome. Not because I read the Bible and figured out who Jesus was. No, way, way before that. He's the one that comes down and fixes it all right. If, he, if that was Mount Hermon, if that was the place where the fallen angels come, Jesus is making a better He's taking back the ground and his honor and glory will take away all pain and suffering and we will have the everlasting life. And that actually is a really good thing to think about. 
So we need to engage in a lifestyle of listening. We do a lot of talking to God. Great. We do a lot of praying. Yes. We also have to listen to the Lord. And when the Lord speaks, by his spirit, we need to put it into practice. We do not do this alone. Thanks be to God. I mean, when I left Australia in, oh my gosh, 1996, I remember some brothers and sisters saying, um, aren't you a little bit nervous of going overseas? And I said, nope. I'm part of the biggest gang in history. There's two billion people in my gang. Doesn't matter where I go, I'm going to find my brothers and sisters. And they are sitting in this room with me right now. And uh, you can support me. I get the opportunity to support you. And we support each other. We need to have a lifestyle of listening and putting into practice what the Lord uh, has done. And so the message of Jesus is to follow both the majesty and the glory but also the suffering and the way of the cross. It's both at the same time. For some of us, it's going to be with miracles. But for all of us, it is going to be taking up our cross in hand with the glory of the Lord. And we are not alone. And that is good news. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, Let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page or leaving a review in iTunes. You can offer practical support to Christ Church Jerusalem by clicking the Donate Now button on our Facebook page. Thank you and blessings from the City of the King.